Ryan, how are you today? I'm okay. How are you? Watching a little bit of World Cup. So what you're saying is in the middle of this conversation, at some point, you're just going to jump up and shout, go! No, 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 not today. I've actually got the TV in the studio here unplugged, so I can't, uh, I'm completely, uh, you have my undivided attention. I am not a sport ball type of guy, as you know. No, I know you're not. We've established that. And I, I just don't get how we can get all nationalistic about countries in which we do not live. Well, when it comes to the Olympics, we're all nationalistic. Yeah, because we can get behind our country in a general sense. Um, we are not a soccer nation. We are a hockey nation. And whenever there's a big international hockey game or tournament, we tend to lose our minds. And but with soccer, no, we're not like the Portuguese or the Italians or the Germans or the French or the or anyone else for that or matter. anybody else is that matter. And it's interesting <laughs> because you know the United States is playing and and the States is is, is uh, very very highly ranked, but uh, for the most part, uh, most of the U.S. is just pretending that they're soccer fans or um, not watching at all. Is that because David Beckham got involved and that really drew attention to the whole situation? No, I mean the Americans just seem to be, seem to be a they, they've they've developed their soccer program very well and their men's team is very very. Very good. And um, but the point is that the, the country doesn't rally behind their men's soccer team like, say, the French do or the Italians do or the Spanish do or the, the, the Dutch do. So it's it's uh, they're, they're kind of out there on their own. I have to confess, um, before we started the big show, I just came back from dinner and I've already had my martini. OK, I have I found in my uh, liquor cabinet something that I purchased um, a couple of summers ago in Korea, South Korea, and I'm. Just opening it now. This is a bottle of soju. What is that? Which is a rice li liquor, almost a rice wine, not a sake, uh, but something that tastes almost like bad vodka. <laughs> and it is, it's really, really cheap. And if you see a South Korean salaryman, Face down in the gutter after a long, hard days at work, chances are it's too much soju. So by the end of this show, you're going to be under the microphone. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. The views expressed on Geeks and Beats are those of the participants alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of their employers or as the afternoon progresses... Uh, not necessarily reflecting our views either. There, there you go. I, uh, you and I were working for the same employer for the past week. I know. How have you liked working for the mighty Ten Ten? Uh, News Talk Ten Ten uh, CFRB the uh... the Double Ten. So, do you think maybe a daytime talk show is your thing now? I don't know. I, it was rather interesting. It was an experience that I'd never had before. Actually, that's not true. This is the second week that I've done this for them, and I do it again. It was, it was fun. It was a new skill set that I was uh, attempting to learn. From the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, this is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. Featuring musical guest Sting. Note, Geeks and Beats is for external use only. Cease use if itching persists. We'll tell you why the Seven Asian Army is a soccer favorite. Meantime, we'll debunk the urban legend that says soccer killed Bob Marley. Stonehenge, did you know that it's a musical instrument? We'll tell you why Peter Appleyard should have made Britain his home. Does anyone know who he is anymore? I don't think so. Chelsea Handler makes the jump to Netflix and my heart skips a beat. 
plus a GMB update on the travels of our miracle travel mug of traveling and why the United States is in a karaoke cold war with the Chinese. They are going to go absolutely ape and they're going to strike back with everything they got. And now, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. Why Seven Nation Army is soccer's favorite chant. We're going to be talking a little bit about soccer here, given that the World Cup is on. And if you are a Italian national team person, or if you follow well, any number of professional soccer leagues, you'll know that Seven Nation Army, that, that seven-note riff that Jack White plays, is, is really, really popular. Not only do they play the song in the stadiums, but uh, the fans will will chant those seven notes over and over again. Uh, and apparently that began in a bar in Milan, Italy on October 22nd, 2003. And Belgian supporters who had been adopted by the Italians brought this uh, chanting thing from Seven Nation Army, and, and everybody began to, to sing it and adopt it, and it became a really big thing for, I guess, the 2006 World Cup with the Italian side. I, it's, it's really cool, and Jack White's really, really proud of this. He's really happy with it. There are certain tracks that end up making it into sports lore. Gary Glitter has one of them. Yes, uh, with Rock and Roll Part 2. <laughs> There's steam, hey, hey, na, na, wave goodbye. I suppose the underlying point, though, is that these tracks tend to rally that group of people, that group mentality, that mob mentality just gets whipped into a frenzy when they hear certain tracks and certain riffs. Listen, it's a great riff. It's seven notes that Jack came up with at a... Um, I think he was in Australia, and he came up with him at a sound check. What often happens during sound checks when people are just noodling around? Uh, somebody on the road crew has a tape running. And uh, so Jack was trying out this this new idea, and uh, he said, "Hey, what do you think this sounds like?" And somebody had pressed play or pressed record on the uh, on the tape machine, gave it back to him, and then he developed the song after that, and it became you know this 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 huge juggernaut track for him. According to Jack White, Seven Nation Army is what he used to call the Salvation Army when he was a kid. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> listen, it 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 works great as a as a some kind of. You know, nationalistic chant. It wasn't just a uh, a song for you know soccer hooligans to get around. Uh, apparently, it was also featured February first of twenty eleven on the broadcast of Democracy Now, where it was linked to the massive pro democracy demonstrations occurring in Egypt. So it had a a, a a real political undertone to it as well. Well, it's a very serious sounding seven notes. It, it works really, really well. I you know, and and you know, good for Jack. What I'm going to do is I'm going to post a link to the history of the use of Seven Nation Army in sporting events. And it really begins with this thing in a bar in Milan in October of 2003. Still with the World Cup, apparently Sony's playing hardball against Beats by Dr. Dre. I, I, I love this. This is actually really bright. Uh, Sony, if you've seen the boards along the sides of the, the advertising boards along the sides of the pitch, you'll see that Sony has a very, very big presence there with their 4K televisions and everything else. So they paid FIFA a huge sponsorship fee in order to be the official electronics supplier to the, to the World Cup. 
Now, what Beats did in the 2012 Olympics, maybe you remember this, uh, what Beats did was they gave their headphones to uh, for free to a number of very high-profile athletes, knowing very well that these athletes would have these headphones on as they psyched themselves up for their events. So you would see swimmers, for example, sitting w- behind the blocks waiting to be called to their races, and they would be listening to music on these very distinctive-looking Beats headphones. So what they ended up doing in this guerrilla marketing campaign is... Uh, sort of piggybacking on Olympic coverage without having to pay for anything. What they also have done since then, because that was so successful, is that they've given their headphones to a number of other very successful athletes, including top-level footballers. And, you know, for example, M. Wayne Rooney from, uh, from England and uh, Neyman Jr. From, from Brazil, they have often been spotted on the sidelines before games, at halftime, or whatever, uh, listening to music on their Beats headphones. Sony knew this. They figured out what happened in the London Olympics, and then they realized what was going to happen for the World Cup. So Sony went to FIFA and said, listen, we make headphones too. You cannot allow this interloper to steal our thunder. I mean, we've paid millions upon millions of dollars for our sponsorship. There is no way that we're going to allow this Beats company to to take any of our turf. So basically what happened was FIFA gave Beats a red card. None of these headphones can be uh, present on the pitch. Nobody can wear them leading up to their games. Nobody can be spotted in a covered situation listening to music on Beats headphones. So uh, I'm I'm wondering if that has something to do with uh, England's uh, early exit from the tournament. That reminds me of one of the big radio tricks whereby you would have a major music group coming to town, but your radio station was not the sponsor. So you couldn't say, here's U2 sponsored by, insert radio station name here. Right. Instead, the way you would get around it was, radio station name welcomes U2 to Toronto. That's it, because the real word, the, the, the word with any sort of... Um, weight is presents right so when you hear a radio station uh say you know so-and-so presents name of band here uh that means that there is some kind of business relationship between the radio station and the promoter to provide a presenting sponsorship which means which is better than welcomes (laughs) so that was a that was a Cute way we're at. We did that all the time. We still do it. Oh, yeah. The whole industry does it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and there's really nothing you can do about it because it, um, well, there's nothing there's, there's nothing that's saying that I can't go on the radio and welcome a band to town. That's just being hospitable, you know? <laughs> I can't think of soccer, though, without thinking of Bob Marley. And the, wasn't it basically a, an urban legend that Bob Marley playing soccer is what killed him? Okay, let me let me explain this. Bob Marley was an avid footy player. And in the about 1977 or 1978, he was playing football and he his toes started to hurt. So we went to have a look at it and uh the the story is that an injury from playing football led to something Uh, becoming malignant, cancerous in his toe, which then spread to the rest of his body, eventually invaded his brain and killed him. That's not really true. Here's really what happened. Bob Marley had an underlying form of melanoma that is common to people uh, of dark skin, dark pigment skin and, and Asians. 
and um, it was pretty much asymptomatic until there there seemed to be uh, call it a mole or some sort of wart underneath his big toe nail. And what happened was that playing soccer, he ended up... Um, the toenail became partially detached. That, that dis- he allowed him to discover what was going on underneath the nail. And that was that melanoma. And that was, that didn't, that was already present. It, was, it did, was not caused by the soccer injury. What the soccer injury did was reveal it. And there was an opportunity for him to maybe arrest this cancer before it metastasized. Uh, by amputating the toe, but being a hardcore Rastafarian, uh, that was forbidden by his religion. So he insisted that no, the toe must stay. We're going to do this skin graft thing, and hopefully that'll that'll uh, that'll eradicate the problem. But uh, apparently, the the cancer was already in his system, and then by um, a couple of years later, he was he was dead. It had gone through his entire body. So it wasn't soccer that killed him, but it was soccer that aggravated an existing, a pre-existing condition that ended up killing him. Well, as I learned when I was in Jamaica recently, there are no problems. There are only situations. Yes, exactly. And that was the situation with, with the toe. It's a sad story. And he probably, he might have been able to, he might have been able to survive, survive had he had the surgery and had the toe removed. But again, you don't know how far that cancer, that, that underlying cancer had metastasized at that point, because once it presented itself in that form, it's, uh, it, it's, it's hard to say exactly, you know, what's, what's going on. The same thing with Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs probably could be alive today if it wasn't for the fact that he believed that he could treat his condition with rainbows and hope. Yeah. I mean, he, if you read, read the Walter Isaacson book. I did. Yeah. So there's the whole story in there about he tried to go all holistic on this and, and, and you know, macrobiotic and all the rest of it. And he, he insisted that that was working, but then, you know, he ended up having to have the liver transplant and um, he probably, well... Again, you're dealing with, with, with pancreatic cancer, and that's a bad one. But maybe if he had cut it a little earlier, he would have been fine rather than trying to battle it with these, these natural remedies. All right, let's come full circle back to soccer here and turn up the volume. Who are you rooting for? That's a good question. Uh, I, I, I have a, uh, a soft spot for Brazil, and I would like to see the Brazilians win on their home turf. So that's, that's it. I would like to see somebody other than a European team win. <laughs> Why? Uh, well, because the European teams tend to be, you know, dominant, and I would like to see some uh, um, team from another conference win. Now you're an underdog type of guy. I am. And you and, should be rooting for the Americans. No, I'm rooting for Costa Rica, who are huge, huge underdogs that have over-delivered unbelievably. So um, I'm on their side. Ever wanted to be a big shot co-producer? It's just like Hollywood. Visit geeksandbeats.com to learn how you can pad your resume with an exciting show credit. We'll even send you the album cover of your episode, suitable for framing in your parents' basement. You think you've come up with an understanding as to why Stonehenge was built? This is really cool. I've written about this before, and... Uh, since we've just passed the summer solstice, which attracted a whole bunch of druids, new agers, crusties, and hippies. <laughs> crusties? Crusties are, are, are kind of like, it's, it's an English thing. These are guys with dreadlocks who live in caravans and don't bathe. Ah, oh, so their skin is crusty. Uh, <laughs> every, everything is crusty. So anyway, we just had, uh, they all showed up at Stonehenge for the solstice and all the rest of it. See, we don't really know what Stonehenge was built for. 
it seems to be some sort of astronomical instrument, but why would they drag these stones hundreds of miles from Wales, these blue stones hundreds of miles from Wales, to put in this particular circle? You know, what was the point? And uh, the, the, the researchers have found a, a number of things, which I find were rather cool. Um, there, there were acoustic properties to Stonehenge. So if you sit in the circle and, and, and you'll notice that there's interesting echoes and sounds are, are, are focused in, in odd ways. But one of the things that they found is that uh, if you strike these stones with a, you know, a, a hammer or, or something sufficiently hard, they kind of ring. They kind of ring like a bell. And it's being hypothesized that basically Stonehenge was built as a giant prehistoric glockenspiel. I, I know it's 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 kind of weird. I'm not, you know why I'm not buying it? Why? Because I recently learned that Stonehenge is fake. What? Yeah. In the late 1900s, between 1901 and 1964, they actually had to rebuild the locations of the stones themselves and put them back up to where archaeologists think the original Stonehenge was and how it looked. Because prior to that, you know, yokels and, and, and hoodlums knocked them all over and, and screwed with them. So when it comes down to it, we really don't know what the original Stonehenge looked like. Oh, well, hey, well, did you know that? 1954, they rebuilt it. Okay, I didn't know that. That's that's interesting. I, I'd i never heard that one. My brother, who spent a lot of time in England as well, says that there is a second Stonehenge that they built for the tourists. What? That actually isn't the real Stonehenge. So if you go to England, you need to make sure you're going to the proper Stonehenge. Well, that's the one that's on Salisbury Plain, right? Right. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, let me just read from a New York Times article. Among ancient cultures, ringing rocks were sometimes thought to be imbued with mystical or healing powers. The Chinese believed the stones that they called bainchi, which translates as resonant rocks, contained the life force known as chi. Neolithic art has been found on ringing rocks in India, and some Native American rituals are also known to have such rocks. These associations may explain what the ringing rocks, known as lithophones, are doing at Stonehenge, a song long associated with rituals. So, they're not hollow, but if you do ring them, or if you hit them, they do ring, because... Let me just see. When they cool, okay, it has to do with something called uh, diabase rocks, which are abundant in rock and in, sorry, abundant in iron and magnesium, and spend almost two hundred million years below the ground before rising to the surface. When they cool, it's something like forging a cast iron bell. Huh. The resulting rock is dense enough to produce a high pitched tone when struck. Huh. So, all right, the rocks they used to rebuild this thing back in the fifties. Uh, are the original rocks, correct? Right. It's just we don't know precisely where those rocks were. We've got an idea. We think we know. We just don't know for sure. But that doesn't change the fact that if you hit one of these rocks, it rings. Right. And then you've got the resonance against the other rocks to play off as well. Right. So, again, we may have a giant xylophone or a giant uh, glockenspiel here sitting on Salisbury Plain. I'm just bringing that up because it's that time of year. Peter Appleyard, look out. Oh, yeah. Got a question about music, love, that suspicious rash? Ask Alan anything. Call 323-319-NERD. Hi, Alan and Michael. It's Chris in Waterloo. Just wondering if Alan can shed any light on what the hell the spaghetti incident is.
Thanks. Great podcast. Okay. The Spaghetti Incident was an album released by Guns N' Roses in November of 1993. Uh, the title is an inside joke. There was a food fight between Axl Rose and drummer Steve Alder. And uh, apparently when Alder was kicked out of the band and then sued Guns N' Roses in 1993, um, in the suit, we have a reference to the spaghetti incident, which relates back to this rather violent food fight uh, that apparently had something to do with Steve Alder's extrication from the band. On the bottom of the cover art of the album, there's a code written with the Zodiac Killer symbols. Did you know this? Uh, let me have a look at the album cover art here. Hang on. Wikipedia tells me that uh, when you decipher the Zodiac Killer symbols uh, written on the bottom in the cover art of the album, it reads... Oh, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. So that sounds like a Guns N' Roses thing. I like that. But it has to do with this lawsuit between Steve Alder and the rest of the band. Kevin, thanks for calling in. If you've got a question for Ask Alan Anything, call 323-319-NERD. It could be a question about music. It could be a question about life. Or it could be a question about suspicious rashes. Yes, we have yet to have a question about a rash. I am good with rashes. I am not a doctor, but I can help you, I think. Someone else who's probably good with suspicious rashes, Chelsea Handler. I really don't know much about this woman. What can you tell me? Uh, Chelsea Handler's a comedian who got herself an e-talk show uh, after she had done a, a series of books as well as a bunch of stand-up routines, etc. She's actually really quite funny, and she's the only female talk show host uh, who I think really pulls it off. You know, like you could go back to The Tonight Show and to, uh, what's her name? Uh, uh, Joan Rivers? Joan Rivers, thank you. You could go back to her as uh, one of the first female talk show hosts, but um, Handler pulls it off quite well. She's actually pulled up her, her socks lately. In the past couple of years, it was clear she was phoning it in because she was not that big a fan of spending her afternoon talking about ridiculous celebrity gossip. Right. I. I... But she's uh, managed to uh, parlay that into a new gig with Netflix. So what's she going to do with Netflix? Netflix tends to be a binge-watching service, so is this going to be like a regular scheduled Netflix show? Well, that's what makes it very different, is you're right. Usually you would think of Kevin Spacey and House of Cards or Orange is the New Black and you gorge yourself watching all 13 episodes over the course of a weekend. But no, this ultimately will be a nightly talk show like every other nightly talk show, but this one's going to be on Netflix. Thing is, is it's not coming out until 2016. Well, that's an awfully long time to develop something. It doesn't make an awful lot of sense to me, but okay, fine. In the interim, she'll be doing a series of stand-up comedy specials, uh, more or less, where you, 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 they all do that. All the big ones do that. They go to a, a like a Massey Hall, and they, over the course of two nights, they shoot a show that ends up being a special. Yeah, George Carlin, uh, uh, Louis C.K., everybody does them. Exactly. So she'll be doing a few of those. It was interesting that, that she started to bite the hand that fed her over at the E! Network by publicly saying that these guys don't know what they're doing. They've got no vision. They don't know what's next. They don't know how to deal with the Internet at large. They're just, you know, they got their heads up their butts thinking about the Kardashians all day. She didn't want to have anything to do with that. Along comes Netflix. And uh, according to Wired.com, the real prize for late night host is landing the interview or having the celebrities read mean tweet segment that goes viral why not just have an on-demand show of nothing but one-off handler interviews and sketches that viewers can binge through a la carte well you know that's kind of what people do with bbc canada when they have the graham norton show these are all reruns and, and people they have marathons and people sit through them all i don't find them funny but 
Um, do you okay. find female comedians funny generally? He asks as he lobs a grenade in your direction. I'm not going anywhere near that. <laughs> I mean, I, I was, you know, back before Joan Rivers turned into the Joker. I really like Joan Rivers. Um, I, I like, uh, oh, what's her name? Um, ah, oh, my point. Sarah, Sarah Silverman. I think she's really funny. Did you see the Sil Sarah Silverman episode of Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee? No. You know what? I haven't got into that series yet. I'm saving it for a time when I've got nothing else to do, but I'm going to watch that. But apparently she, it was very funny. What the hell happened back then? Uh, I think I've got, I've got two dogs running around here now. So anything can happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's more suspicious when there's silence. Have you ever listened to, ever caught anything by uh, Lisa Lampanelli? I like Lisa Lampanelli. Uh, I'm a fan, fan of Amy Schumer as well. Okay, yes. Uh, some, uh, Amy Poehler. Amy Poehler is um, excellent. I, you know, I would do anything to have dinner with... Um, uh, Tina Fey. You were going to say Tina With Fey. Tina Fey. Anything. I think she's great. I, I, I would not watch Tina Fey stand up. I don't think she's funny, but I think she's a funny human being. And You she, don't think Tina Fey is funny? No. No, I really don't. I, I don't Ugh. know what it is, but I, I, I find her, her humor to be somewhat predictable. But if you watch Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee, she's on there. And it's almost like she and Jerry are having a date. Your kids, where are they on Santa Claus? Well, we're Jewish. On the next episode of Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. You don't drive. I don't have a license anymore. Tina Fey, no key, no car. <laughs> Mental child. You walk around the Upper West Side, you will never, ever see a truly good-looking person. I'm in charge of feces. All the household <laughs> feces are my purview. Santa Wink. Was that the greatest hair an old woman has ever had? I pulled up and I forgot to put the car in park. I almost ran myself over. What are you all doing? <laughs> Stop doing okay. that. And behave. Is it my face? Like, why did Oh my God, you're squirming. <laughs> How can I answer this and stay opaque? Oh, this is the greatest show ever. <laughs> I would commit to 22 episodes a year of this. <laughs> She's very good at um, at uh, improv. And if you read her book, Bossy Pants, she talks about you know, oh, how the important... I hated that book. I did not laugh out loud once. She, how? Oh! I, I had the audio book, and, and she reads it herself. It's hysterical. Oh, well, maybe she needs to read it for me to enjoy it. Because oh. I read the book, and, and at the end of it, I just turned to my wife and I went, maybe you'll like this. <sighs> it's very funny. You're wrong. Simple as that. <laughs> London, Bangkok, New York, Cincinnati. From the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, this is a GNB News Update. Victor's back, baby. Victor? Victor Biggio. And his miracle travel mug of traveling. Oh, that Victor. Oh, I was thinking Victor Biggio. Was he on uh, Another World? No, he wasn't on Mad Men. <laughs> okay. Although he could fit in on Mad Men. He's got the look. Let's have He's a, a good-looking man. Uh, he's traveling in Cabo San Lucas. And, I was going to uh, say that that looks like a Cabo San Lucas shot. It is. It is. Yes. Uh, and so if you've got yourself one of those Geeks and Beats uh, miracle travel mugs of traveling, like Victor, you too could be uh, sending us photos via Twitter of where your mug has managed to make it. I think this is probably the 12th 
photo he's sent us. Have we got a gallery? We should put up a gallery. We're going to put up a gallery. We have to. Uh, of all of these locations that uh, the Geeks and Beats Miracle Travel Mug of Traveling, he's, he's actually created his own hashtag called GNB Mug Tour 2014. I love it. Yeah. I love it. He even got uh, the limited edition 50, uh, 50th episode uh, t-shirt. Oh, that's right. I forgot. Yeah. So I'm looking here at one, two, three, four, five, six. Yeah. It's, he's got a good dozen of them here. Excellent. Okay. So if you want to go up against uh, Victor Biggio and see if you can uh, get your Geeks and Beats mug uh, out and about more often than him, uh, make sure you use uh, the GNB Mug Tour 2014 hashtag. <laughs> yeah. We can start some kind of meme, get that trending. Exactly. Uh, and also, KDog96 sent his love uh, by way of uh, saying that it was a great tribute and retrospective on the life and career of the late Casey Kasem. We were very, very respectful. and I uh, wasn't very respectful. I was. You were. I, I felt a little um, douchey by playing the the outtake. No, clip. no, 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 no. That's that's where you're wrong. That that has what that does is it shows that this guy who was all warm and friendly on the air was actually human. And there's not a radio guy in the world that grew up listening to Casey Kasem that wasn't grateful for that clip because it showed everybody that wanted to get into the business that everybody has a breaking point. And that even the super duper pros have to do stupid things that they that they hate doing. Well, that was kind of what I was hoping would come across. It just came across like I thought it was funny that this guy lost his. Uh, no, no, I, I, it's not at all. I mean, if there were outtakes of me, uh, they would be very similar. I I, I had a, an unfortunate moment on the air the other day. It, it was a breaking point kind of moment where no matter how good you are and this is the thing about tv over radio is that no matter how good you are at what you do and how well you are currently doing what you do all it takes is one person of the group of maybe 10 to 20 people who are responsible actively for making that television moment all it takes is one person to slip up and the whole thing goes in the dumper and i had a moment like that the other night and i hit my little talk back button we've got this button that allows me to talk to the control room it cuts my microphone in the process and i said oh <laughs> and then it occurred to me the guy sitting across from me had a microphone on as well oh no but fortunately we had hit the commercial break by that point so it wasn't the kind of thing that made it to air but if i am suddenly mysteriously no longer on television ever again <laughs> It's most likely because I hit that little button and swore, but didn't hit the button. I slipped, and it actually went on the air. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's why I'm, I'm not into television, because there's so many people responsible that could be responsible for making me look like an idiot. When it's radio, uh, like standard sort of playing records on the radio, if there's a mistake, it's you, or it's a technical glitch that you have no control over. Yeah, you you live and die by your own work in radio. Exactly. It doesn't matter how good you are in television. If somebody else screws up, you look like the idiot. Yeah, and it always comes down on you. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I don't really have that much of a problem with that because I do get all the glory as well as all the blame. You, you get glory? You know what I kind of do. Okay. Yeah. All right. Good for you. The Chinese army is getting big in karaoke. Yes, I read this story and I immediately thought of Dr. Strangelove, the uh, Stanley Kubrick movie. And General Buck Turgeson? General Buck Turgeson played by George C. Scott. Now, there, there's a, a point towards the end of the movie where the doomsday device is about to be detonated. And uh, Dr. Strangelove is explaining to everybody in the 
war room beneath the big board that uh, the best thing for everybody is to select a chosen group of people, put them down into mine shafts and let them stay down there until the radiation is passed and then they can emerge and rebuild society. You mentioned the uh, ratio of uh, 10 women to each man. Uh, Wouldn't that necessitate the abandonment of the so-called monogamous sexual relationship? I mean, as far as men were concerned. Uh, Regrettably, yes. But it is, you know, a sacrifice required for the future of the human race. I hasten to add that since each man will be required to do prodigious service along these lines, the women will have to be selected for their sexual characteristics, which will have to be of a highly stimulating nature. I must confess, you have an astonishingly good idea there, Doctor. Somewhere along the line, the Soviets have more mine shafts for this purpose than the Americans. And Buck Turgeson, you know, talks about missile gaps and a bunch of other things. And towards the end, he says in this in this exchange, Mr. President, we must not allow a mine shaft gap. Were he still alive or were he real, General Buck would be losing his mind at the prospect of the Chinese army having this this brand new advantage that uh, was reported on this past week. There is now a karaoke gap. This is a, a story from <laughs> Bloomberg Businessweek. Yes. I'll, I will quote, Chinese soldiers will soon need larger, roomier tanks. With a richer diet of meat and dairy, the average soldier has grown two centimeters taller and added five centimeters to his waistline over the past 20 years. Now, the official paper of China's 2.3 million troops, the PLA Daily, the People's Liberation Army Daily, offers a look at the cultural and musical needs of the army. Military officials plan to double expenditures on boomboxes, karaoke machines, and electronic musical instruments. You gotta keep them happy. Well, that's it. The improvements in grassroots army culture equipment are intended to, quote, meet the spiritual and cultural needs of officers and soldiers, as reported by PLA Daily. Loudspeakers and new cameras for China's uniform shutterbugs will also be provided. The newspaper did not disclose a new budget for the cultural equipment. But that's not all. Apparently, belting out karaoke numbers is good preparation for troops facing hostilities. Yes, <laughs> I, I get pretty hostile when you start talking about karaoke. I know. <laughs> the new equipment will also, quote, boost combat competitiveness of troops and, quote, promote a strong army able to achieve significant goals. So be afraid, very afraid, of the karaoke gap that is now emerging with China. <laughs> Listen, you just know that there's some wacko Republican <laughs> that's saying, Mr. Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, we must not allow this karaoke gap. Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes and watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter or Facebook and get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.